Not every founder wants to build a multi-billion dollar company. That's not everyone's goal, right? You know, and, and some number of people, when they go through programs like CDL or 500 Startups or, or any other accelerator, they have epiphanies along the way and realize like, okay, now that I see what this is going to entail, deep down, this isn't what I want to do with my life. And, and that's a success as well. Um, because the goal isn't to do what investors want or what the ecosystem wants, right? The goal as a founder is to, in my opinion, build the best company that you want to build. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 69 of the Afternoon Tea Podcast, where we chat with the founders of Canada's most interesting and successful companies. I am Chris Hobbs, president and co-founder of TTT Studios, a Canadian software innovation studio headquartered here in beautiful Vancouver, BC, Canada. My favorite part of my job is meeting, chatting, and learning from some fantastic founders across our great nation. We have some amazing guests in season five, kicking off this season off with Grammarly's founder, Max Litvin. Next week, we've got Harold Doomer of OVA. But right now, I'm excited about today's chat with Chris Newman of Panache Ventures. We'll also check in and learn a little bit about this week's start, Canadian startup we love, Wavy, from co-founder Sean Hewitt. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or do all those things we podcasters love. But now, let's introduce the Chris Newman as he chats about why he considers himself both a hunter and a farmer, about what founders can expect seeking investment in the new economic reality, and how he balanced the life decision of taking a stable job versus rolling the dice on being deported. Chris Newman is the general partner at Panache Ventures, Canada's leading early stage fund. He invests in pre-seed and seed stage startups across Canada, focusing on enterprise data, machine learning, AI, and web Three. Before joining Panache, Chris founded Commonwealth Ventures, a San Francisco-based accelerator for Canadian and UK startups whose graduates raised more than 100 million US in funding from top Silicon Valley VCs. Chris has been a venture partner at 500 Startups, where he led investments in nearly two dozen countries, the CEO and co-founder of Data Hero, required by CloudAbility in 2016, and the first employee at Aster Data, acquired by Teradata in 2011. He's a lecturer in entrepreneurship at SFU's BD School of Business, an advisor to the Data Lab, and an associate to the CDL, aka the Creative Destruction Lab. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. And I should actually say, just because of who it is, I mean, this is going to be in published a couple of days for, but happy Diwali day to you. It's the third day of Diwali. We actually celebrated that in the office yesterday, which was happy for me because I got to eat more uh, Indian food than you would ever imagine. And we got to get the I'm, history. I'm massively history jealous. Oh, as, as you should. It was delicious. It was delicious. Well, as I was dreaming of Diwali, I want to know, as a child, were you dreaming of being a VC? Like, when did you realize you wanted to get into the VC game? Oh, gosh, if you had asked me of a kid what a VC was, I would have had no idea whatsoever. Uh, when I was a kid, I was probably too busy playing video games and running around being an idiot. <laughs> so well, what, when did you decide that this was for you, though? Yeah, so I spent, uh, you know, kind of a dozen years in the enterprise uh, data space as, as an entrepreneur and, and an early employee. Um, sold my last company in 2015 and took a little bit of time off because I'd basically done two back-to-back VC-backed, uh, fairly intense uh, startups at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and while I was doing that, some friends of mine were uh, partners of 500 startups and said, "Have you ever, have you ever thought about this?" And I was trying to decide, you know, what to do next. Uh, and they recruited me in and said, hey, why don't you join as, a, as an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence? Mm -hmm. uh, you can work with some of these startups and see if it's, it's something you're interested in. Uh, and I think I went in there for a couple of weeks and I was I was pretty quickly hooked and, and mm -hmm. realized, yeah, OK, this is this is probably what's going to be next for me. Fantastic. Well, what's what's uh, what skills should a good VC possess? Like what's uh, what's your own special superpower? Yeah, I mean, the, the way it was described to me, I, I think most most accurately is is VCs need to be able to do two things. They need to be hunters and they need to be farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, hunters meaning they need to go out and seek and identify promising startups to invest in uh, mm -hmm. and decide which investments to make. And farmers meaning that you should ideally provide some sort of value help to the founders as they go along their journey. Um, you know, a, a, an accelerator like 500 Startups is sort of the extreme on the farming end where you're working with founders day in and day out for months at a time. 
And for me, that was a really good introduction to the ways in which you can encourage founders and also help them uh, avoid mistakes and learn things that might not always be uh, obvious to somebody who's a, particularly a first-time founder, mm -hmm. uh, but also realizing you know how much of the of the journey is theirs to make. And and for as much as as someone like me might look at it and go, oh man, you've got to do this next. It's such a perfect move to do. Uh, you know, they're gonna listen to that. Go cool. Thanks for sharing and do whatever they think is best, which is which is absolutely the right way. <laughs> Very good. Well, tell me. I mean, your 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 partner Panache Ventures. Um, mm -hmm. I've met lots of great people at Panache Ventures. Uh, tell me what uh, about Panache Ventures. Sure. Well, I think one of the helpful things to understand is that uh, Panache Ventures actually has a genesis in 500 startups. Mm -hmm. uh, so the founders of Panache before doing Panache were actually two of the founders of. 500 Startups Canada, uh, Canadian uh, franchise, 500 Startups Canada. And so, in fact, I've known the founding partners there for, oh gosh, almost almost 10 years at this point. Uh, we share a similar philosophy as it relates to investment. We share a similar philosophy as it relates to the importance of mentoring and helping first-time entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, the way we describe it is as a partnership, we have more exits between ourselves than we have partners. Uh, and so we've got a lot of experience mm -hmm. actually being in the shoes of entrepreneurs. We've been there. We've done that. We know what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And particularly at the at the earliest stages, you know, I think that can be incredibly powerful uh, in allowing us uh, an intuition and an insight into what really matters at those stages and helping founders navigate the you know, the the fire hydrant of well-meaning, but, you know, sometimes misguided advice that is is thrown at them from the ecosystem. Mm. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, you're also the founder of Commonwealth Ventures, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, sounds slightly different from how Panache Ventures works. Can you tell me about uh, Commonwealth? Sure. So when I was at uh, 500 Startups, my focus was actually international investing. So I was based in San Francisco, running an accelerator there, uh, helping to run that, but primarily investing in countries all over the world. And one of the things that I saw was there was a gap, particularly for countries that I would say are are kind of next up to bat after the United States. So countries like Canada, like the UK, like Germany, where they're producing on a regular basis, very, very strong startups. Mm -hmm. But the let's call it um, institutional knowledge that exists in the ecosystem is substantively lower than Silicon Valley. And so we'd often see founders that just didn't have the same baseline knowledge not through any fault of their own, but because the folks in the ecosystem that they were working with just hadn't seen it before, right? If you take any industry in Canada and you think about, okay, name one uh, successful unicorn in that industry, you might be able to name one, which means <laughs> on a numbers basis, a first-time founder has likely never met any of the people behind that company. Uh, and that's quite different from what you see in Silicon Valley, where you can sort of walk down the street, walk into a coffee shop and trip over a couple of, of billion dollar startup founders. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm only slightly exaggerating, but <laughs> it's very easy to get advice and it's very easy to get connected with people who have been in whatever situation you're in before. Mm -hmm, um, you mm -hmm. know, if you are selling enterprise software and you are trying to figure out how do I sell to this particular organization in HP, there might be one person in all of Canada who's ever done that. You can send out an email to a half dozen people in your network, and you'll probably meet five or six in, in San Francisco who can give you their advice. Mm -hmm. um, so jumping ahead to Commonwealth, one of the biggest areas where there is a gap is in fundraising knowledge and best practices. Uh, fundraising in Silicon Valley is structurally very different from mm -hmm. fundraising anywhere else in the world. And for international founders, even ones who kind of think they know how, how the U.S. works, like we do in Canada, mm -hmm. they'll often go down there and find out that this is nothing at all like what I expected. Mm -hmm. uh, and we thought there was an opportunity to really bridge that gap and focus on helping really strong uh, Canadian and U.K. founders in particular prepare for fundraising in the U.S. to give them a better shot of raising seed and Series A capital. And so that's what we did with Commonwealth Ventures and, and to, to quite a bit of success. Um, fast forward a little bit, and I decided that it was time for a change in my career. And significantly, it was time to come back to Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I was born and raised in Vancouver, spent almost 20 years in the Bay Area and was really looking to get more deeply involved in the Canadian ecosystem. Uh, 
the fit with Panache was quite natural. As I said, we've we've worked together for many years and, and mm -hmm. decided this made sense. But also the fit for Panache and Commonwealth Ventures made a lot of sense. Sure. Uh, and so what we did was we actually, uh, Panache Ventures acquired Commonwealth. That continues to operate. We run that accelerator uh, in San Francisco. It's now referred to as, as Panache Academy. And mm -hmm. all of the companies that we invest in across Canada get the benefit of that uh, accelerator. And so Fantastic. today we run quarterly accelerator programs for every single Panache company preparing to fundraise to help them prepare for their next rounds. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, can you, can you give me an example of maybe a, a company that you've backed um, that we might know or someone that uh, maybe has had a, a recent success? Yeah, sure. So Panache is, is the most active early stage investor in Canada. We've got, uh, I think at this point, about 115 companies that we've invested wow. in from coast to coast to coast. Um, the one that comes top of mind from, from here in BC is a company called Certain, uh, based in Victoria, which recently raised, uh, I think it was about a 65 million US uh, Series B. So that was a company that we were the pre-seed investors in. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. Well, has there been anyone that you know, you've looked at, you think, okay, this is going to be um, you know, a great uh, company, but it just didn't work out. Maybe, maybe um, either they they didn't go to the next round, or um, you know they 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 passed on you for the next round. Or is there any company that you 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 know? I guess the best way of saying it is just that you missed out on that you were really excited about, but you just weren't able to uh, get into the either Panache Ventures or Commonwealth Ventures uh, um, uh, umbrella. Oh, sure. That that happens all the time. Um, you know, I think with the the way that VC works. Uh, you know, founders, you know, we might like to think we've got massive differentiations, but if we're, if we're being honest, founders are just looking at us for money, right? And ultimately they need the money to, to continue playing, playing the game and pushing mm -hmm. their company forward. Uh, and so there's a lot of timing involved, right? If we're not particularly in market, so, you know, let's say a founder is fundraising and my calendar is booked or I happen to be out of, out of town for a week or whatnot, things can, things can happen that quickly. Uh, and so there's plenty of companies that, uh, you know, over the years, I would have loved the, the opportunity to invest in, uh, and the timing didn't work out, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and in other cases, there's companies where, um, you know, we were perhaps focused on on one company, and really trying to get that across the line, another company uh, came up, and we didn't have the opportunity to shift enough resources over. And by the time we did, they said, Hey, sorry, you sorry, you missed that boat. Uh, so a lot of what we try to do as a firm is we're constantly looking at ways to be faster uh, and to increase our scale. And in fact, that's a, a big part of my responsibility here at Panache is taking the learnings uh, from my days at 500, where we would see, uh, we would legitimately diligence about 3,000 companies every quarter. That's about 1,000 wow. companies a month. Uh, and we're building a lot of that infrastructure for Panache. Uh, to allow us to operate more effectively because we don't want to be in that position. And we think it's really important that we are as as fast and as responsive as we can possibly be for, for the benefit of founders. Because frankly, at the end of the day, they just want the money and they want to get back to work. <laughs> well, they want the money and, 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 and you know, uh, ex expert, experts like yourself at the EIRs, like all that, I, I think, you know, you really do bring um, you know, huge benefits, tangible benefits on top on top of the money as well. But uh, um, well, what, one one other organization that you're you're part of or we're part of is uh, the the CDL, which is something that really, really, really interests me because it is growing like crazy. It's mm -hmm. it seems to be breeding in every country these days. I think mm -hmm. I saw it in Estonia launched yep. in Estonia last week. Um, what makes us such an amazing organization? And how does it stand out uh, among other in innovations? Absolutely. I was actually at the, the kickoff for, for CDL Vancouver last night uh, for this year. Um, CDL is a, a quintessentially Canadian organization. I, I, I truly believe this is something that would never have been founded anywhere else in the world. And it stems from the idea that, uh, you know, the most significant thing that, that we can do as an ecosystem to help first-time founders is provide them with top mentorship from people who have seen it before. Uh, and that you'll you'll understand that this aligns with a lot of what what I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so where CDL's genesis came from was uh, a professor named Ajay Agrawal out of uh, the University of Toronto who was getting really frustrated that he kept seeing students graduating from U of T. And instead of going off and starting their own companies, they were getting hired into big, in particular, American companies mm -hmm. and said, what can we do to change that? And he brought together a number of prominent CEOs and former founders and investors and things like that and said, well, what if we build a program 
not to take equity, not to really be involved in the funding part, but just to provide these early young first time founders with access to a bench of incredibly experienced uh, mentors who under normal circumstances, they'd likely never be able to meet. Uh, and they they ran the first program there and it was wildly successful and some pretty prominent companies came out of that mm -hmm. and soon thought, hey, let's see if we can if we can replicate this. And Vancouver was actually the second location for that, uh, where they experimented and said, OK, can this exist in another city? Um, you know, as you said, now there, there's countless of these, uh, you know, around the world. I've personally been to. You know, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Atlantic Canada, Oxford, Wisconsin, Madison. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a few of these, and I think this model is is really um, proving successful and having an impact on the Canadian uh, tech economy in particular. Oh, sure, I'll, I'll agree, and I and I love that. You know, I agree. It's a Canadian answer or a Canadian option because you know, not only are we taking business, but we're taking the universities. We're taking like it's a community play. But I'll even argue it's something very non-Canadian, but it does it in such a beautiful way. Is that it is bloodthirsty. Like it is, you are off the island, and you know you have to prove that you are worthy of these people's time. Almost, mm -hmm. you know, in in a in a very non-Canadian fashion. And I think that's what actually builds a lot of the trust within that network of people that do, you know, you probably don't feel, I mean, I maybe maybe you felt that one or two times, oh, this is wasting my time. But from from the sounds of how this is, you're they are not wasting anyone's time because of the way it is. You either do it or you're off. Um, well, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little more, more nuanced than that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the concept is that the most valuable thing that these individuals have to offer is their time, right? <laughs> And so the way CDL operates is in each meeting, uh, the companies come and they provide updates. And at the end of the meeting, the mentors uh, put up their hand for any company that they're willing to spend four hours with over the next two months, right? So basically <laughs> a call every two weeks. <laughs> and the companies are, are only removed from CDL if no mentor in the entire room wants to spend time with them. Uh... So it's it's not that they they missed some sort of arbitrary objection, but mm -hmm. you know you have in most cases 30, 40 mentors, and it's a pretty resounding signal if not a single person in the room wants to spend time with the companies. And usually that's a result of seeing the companies um, not perform, right? And so if you've seen these companies week in and week out, and you know you're setting objectives and saying okay this is what you guys need to achieve by the next you know session in order to to move the company ahead and they're coming back with excuses and reasons mm -hmm. why and all of these sorts of things you, you can very quickly see you know who are the founders that are likely to be really successful and and you know cdl's goal unapologetically the, is to build something massive it is there to help create huge canadian success stories and for for folks who are quite experienced in having done that themselves, you can you can see the traits of the the founders who are, are doing that. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're they're you know getting everything perfect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of the founders that we work with are academics, they're scientists, they're they're not business uh, um, you know folks by trade, mm -hmm. but they're doing what needs to be done to learn that. They're showing a hunger to learn. They're showing a velocity mm -hmm. that tends to be very important in winning global markets right and if we're if we're looking at the, the the goal of building something massive ideally what you're looking at is building a canadian company that is one of the best companies in its space in the entire world mm -hmm. and if you can't convince people in canada that you're good enough <laughs> to win canada right you're definitely not gonna make the podium of the of the uh, of the tech olympics Oh, for sure. And you know what? I really appreciate the way, the, the nuanced um, way you kind of flipped that on, on its head, how I was thinking about it, because I'm also thinking it's fully optimized because if there isn't a, an advisor that is a good fit anyhow, maybe, you know, be it for a certain skill set or, or, or industry, yeah. well, then you're wasting everyone's time anyhow. You might as well cut and go, 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 you know, you as a startup shouldn't be going down a road that's not going to get you anywhere. No, so I, no. I actually think that's a really I, you've changed my way of thinking about that. Well, I think that's... I and think the, that's and the other thing is, look, you know, at the end of the day, not every founder wants to build a multi-billion dollar company. That's not everyone's goal, mm. right? You know, and, and some number of people, when they go through programs like CDL or 500 Startups or, or any other accelerator, they have epiphanies along the way and realize like, okay, now that I see what this is going to entail, deep down, this isn't what I want to do with my life. And, and that's a success as well. Um, because the goal isn't to do what investors want or what the ecosystem wants, right? The goal as a founder is to, in my opinion, build the best company that you want to build. 
uh, and yeah. and what different founders want to build is, is is very different. I think that's great. There's a quote right there. That's fantastic. Well, you know, you've always with 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 uh, Commonwealth and all that. You've always had your you know, roots in the UK and the roots in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, why why is the uh, the UK important? Like, why why is it why is it uh, sure. that a good market for you? So one of the things to understand is that in many respects, the Canadian tech market and the UK tech market are identical. Um, and if you haven't spent time in both of these countries, it, it wouldn't be apparent, but the way in which the tech ecosystems work are, are shockingly similar. Uh, they have similar genesises. They have similar experiences in terms of very strong academic universities, very strong engineering and mathematical universities. Uh, they have very similar government approaches to involvement. So whether that be uh, tax breaks, whether that be subsidization schemes, whether that be uh, incentives for angel investors to get involved, uh, whether that be grant programs that are sometimes helpful and sometimes addictive, um, you know, they're, they're very, very similar. And so what we've found is that any advice or any, any sort of suggestions that you could make to a Canadian founder, you can literally give the exact same advice to a UK founder and it will have the mm -hmm. same impact. Um, and so when I look at the, the global ecosystem for tech, um, putting China to the side because it's sort of a, a globally unique um, country, mm -hmm. after the US, it really is uh, Canada and the UK neck and neck, notwithstanding that the UK is, is sort of about twice the size of Canada. Um, conceptually, they're, they're almost peers. And so with, with Commonwealth Ventures, it was very intentional for us to focus on those two countries um, because they are the countries that, that tend to have the most success with founders raising capital in the United States. They're also the two countries which, uh, you know, very honestly, by virtue of English as a first language and sort of the ties to American culture, they are the two countries where founders find it the easiest to digest and understand and adapt to American business culture. Oh, that's, that's super interesting. That's super interesting. Well, you're, you, one thing that I love, and I, I'm going to tell any listener here, you have to follow Chris um, on LinkedIn, if not for, for following, you know, the, 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 the great plates, but for following his blogs, because Chris, you might have some of the most interesting blog titles, blog articles. And I'm going to say just, it the 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 low tech presentation of your blog as one thing I love like it reminds me of when I started Blogger and I love it. Do not change that because mm -hmm. it's such a great way. But you come up with amazing titles such as "How to Pitch Like an American," um, "Wow, Did My Pitch Deck Suck?" "Canadian VCs and Founders Need to Get Out of Canada." Uh, why do you feel so compelled to share this in a blog form? Well, it goes back to the comments I made earlier about just the baseline knowledge, right? In Canada, we don't have the benefit of the cacophony of voices that Silicon Valley founders do, right? You know, you go to a bar in San Francisco and everyone around you is talking about startups. There's just this level of knowledge that you get simply by being there, by existing there. Um, you know, it's like going to a school and being in a class and just hearing what all of your classmates are talking about. And when we look at Canada, right, number one, we're a pretty geographically uh, dispersed country. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, our bell curve is a lot smaller. We have far fewer companies that have, have made it, so to speak. And so the opportunity to learn from founders who have had great success, early employees, investors is, is significantly uh, diminished relative to uh, you know, being present in, in Silicon Valley. And so as a result, you know, I looked at this and said, you know, when I came back, um, a lot of the stuff that I write about are are topics that we teach in, in Commonwealth and Panache Academy. They're things that I've taught when I was at 500 Startups. They're things that I, I see along the way. And, you know, really what I'm trying to do is, is help, uh, you know, number one, bridge the gap uh, between the level of knowledge that is is inherent in, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem and what we have here in Canada, um, but also, frankly, do a lot of, of myth busting, mm. um, you know, and, and outside of the United States, uh, it is very common for founders and, and frankly, a lot of investors to buy into the nonsense that they read about in TechCrunch or, or the sort of, uh, you know, clickbait headlines in, in various other media. And take that as, as as gospel when, in fact, 
in many cases, it doesn't in any way, shape, or form, uh, you know, represent how Silicon Valley actually operates. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you don't have some of that knowledge around, look, this is how it actually works. This is the etiquette differences. This is how business is done there. Mm -hmm. You are at a severe disadvantage relative to the companies that, that are based there uh, and the founders who really understand, look, this is, this is what's going on in this ecosystem, which continues to this day to be the most significant tech ecosystem on the planet. Mm -hmm. Well, I, 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 I love the way you said it's myth busting because I 100% I agree. I'll, I'll, like how I describe it is awesome personalized lessons because they're very personal. Um, and, and I think that's what makes it so interesting. But it's also so unapologetic. It is. This is how it is. And this is how you need to think. And if you want to be a, you know, a world class startup, hey, Canada, start waking up. And, and, and really, they are such great lessons that, that you've been able to Thank share. You. I appreciate that. Oh, every time I see them posted, I get, I get, I get giggles and uh, I love the pictures, the personal pictures that you throw in there as, as well. Well, you know, again, I think that your, your message of helping Canadian startups throughout is, has been, has been really, um, really, you know, really resounds with the theme of this podcast. And um, I just wanted to uh, share with you this, this week. So we have every week, we have a, a, a startup that we love. Now this is, a, okay. a, pardon me, let me reframe this, a Canadian startup that we love, even more important. Um, and this week's Canadian startup that we love is is, um, is a, a startup called Wavy. And Sean Hewitt, the founder, has a great question for you. Okay. What does your company do and who are you? Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm Sean Hewitt. I'm the co-founder and CEO here at Wavy. We have a platform that helps teams plan, manage, and measure all of their company events and culture initiatives in one place. And uh, glad to be on the podcast today. Amazing, amazing. Could you tell me a little bit about the founding team? For sure. So my co-founder, Nishé, and I came together actually because we used to work together at a company in the employee engagement space called Nudge. Um, when we originally started Wavy, and there's another founder that started it with us, Peter, uh, the three of us kind of came together out of friendship and interest in the space of experiences and how we could help people have better shared experiences um, that later evolved to be a team building and company culture solution. Um, but when we came together originally, um, we kind of had the business side, the growth side down and knew we wanted some technical expertise and someone that could really lead the technical side of our business. And I'd always looked up to Nisha as a colleague. So approached her about joining forces and that ended up working extremely well. So we, uh, we're super happy to be in the space that we are. We've got a background in the employee engagement and HR tech space and uh, actually have some of the founders of Nudge, which, actually, which got acquired by Exonify as our mentors. One of them is on our board today. So bit of a full circle there. That's how we came together. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I guess I should say our company, TTT Studios, we're actually wavy users and we really enjoy the service. So I should thank you for that, that, you know, for, for helping us in our HR engagement side of life as well. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the world of work has changed so much and with people working all over the place in offices and their homes and co-working spaces in Mexico, um, <laughs> it's hard to help people get to know each other as humans and that's what we do as at Wavy. So super happy to be helping your teams and, and many like it across. Well, thank across you. Thank you. Well, can you share with me what, you know, what I call kind of a biggest win of late? Can you, can you, can you share something that, uh, you know, is a, is a big win for Wavy? Yeah. Um, a couple things. We recently launched our freemium plan. So team can, teams can get started with Wavy for free mm -hmm. uh, and can start benefiting from our, our platform right away. And I think one of our really cool features that we launched is Originally, you worked with Wavy to book hosted events or experiences. Mm -hmm. That's still something that we offer and it's our bread and butter, but we now have a library of kind of suggestions or free activities or templates that you can use to host your own events. Um, and that's been a really exciting one to launch and such a value add for teams who may have been suffering from layoffs or budget cuts or are just looking for cheap and cheerful ways to get together we now offer that too so i feel like that's a that's a big win especially during these times that's fantastic that's fantastic get them addicted understand the value <laughs> and uh pull them in pull them in uh from for for paying customers like us um well you know i'm always intrigued you know the, the what what's one thing that you've learned along the way that you wish you understood before you started wavy mm -hmm. 
I think this question or my answer to this question will change every month, depending on what I've learned from the past (laughs) past month. Um, I think my biggest learning lately is a lot of media coverage on startups and a lot of talk about startups is about fundraising and about investors and about how much capital or how much debt companies have taken on. Mm -hmm. And with that, you like as a founder, you're often in a mindset of pitching and pitching to investors and reaching fundraising milestones. And that can often equate to the success of your startup. Mm-hmm. And recently I've been uncoupling that. I think a lot of early stage startup founders who have taken part in like boot camps or accelerators or programs kind of end up idolizing the like fundraising stages mm-hmm. and can sometimes get the purpose of your startup mixed up with. Um, appealing to investors or Mm. to VCs. You know, this is timely for today's episode. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So I think recently my biggest learning was, you know, we raised our seed round at the end of 2021. Um, I worked really hard on our long-term product vision, our long-term company vision, and did a lot of investor-facing positioning. You know, why Mm. Wave is a great company to invest in. And then kind of took that to market saying, okay, this is our customer positioning and I'm going to use this. Mm. And biggest learning is that that's not the case. Um, Really leaning in and speaking your customer's language and focusing on your customer pain points and the value you're offering them above all else is what I'm doing now. And Mm -hmm. it's working much better. And I I think just remembering and recentering around the fact that like you're doing, you're building your business to solve a customer need. And that's the most important thing. Um, Investors who value that will participate and will Mm -hmm. take part in your journey. But the purpose is what you're helping your customers with. And that that can be lost sometimes. Well, I think that's, I think that's an awesome lesson learned that we can be sharing with all of our, all of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for that one. That's, that's awesome. Well, as you know, we chat with some of Canada's most intriguing uh, and successful founders on Afternoon Tea. And our guest this week is the Chris Newman of Panache Ventures. Do you have a question that uh, you could ask him about his journey? Yeah. Um, I, I think my question for him would be more so around advice for founders. Um, I do know the Panache team, they didn't participate mm-hmm. in our, our seed round, but are, are definitely uh, a great example of a, of a good team and in, in VC in Canada. Mm-hmm. So awesome that you're hosting them. And my question, question for, for Chris would be, what's your advice for early stage founders who are raising a seed or a seed extension right now? I think there's a lot of stress about a pending economic downturn, uh, the impact that's having on the tech space. We're hearing a lot of different things, um, you know, especially if you look on things like Twitter, one tweet is, uh, you know, we've never been investing more and we've never been doing more deals. And the other is like tech is dead and it's mm-hmm. the downfall of tech. So as a founder, this can be really stressful. My question, Chris, is, what advice do you have for early stage founders who are looking to raise or need to raise that extension in the next six to 12 months while the market's so volatile? Um, I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Well, I don't know that I've heard anyone say tech is dead. Uh, so I suspect anyone saying that is in no way, shape or form in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is a unique time. Uh, and for younger founders in particular, this can seem scary, this can seem challenging, um, because frankly, the last 10 years have been easy. Uh, and you know, for founders who were not in, in, the, um, in the market uh, when 2008, 2009, the, the last financial crisis happened, they've effectively operated in a professional capacity through one of the most extended periods of high availability capital ever. Mm. Um, You know, we had record low interest rates leading to an amount of capital in the ecosystem, which frankly made it really easy for companies to raise. Mm -hmm. And so for founders who've only experienced that, they're looking at the adjustments now and going, oh, the sky is falling, this is horrible. When in fact, what's really happening is a return to what it was like before, mm-hmm. uh, which effectively means you actually have to, you know, kind of be pretty good to raise funding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the analogy I use is is universities, right? So if you're applying to a top university, there are a certain number of uh, you know spots of admission, right? And you don't actually know what GPA you need to get in 
until after the fact. And some years, the average is higher and some years, the average is lower, right? And, you know, for the last 10 years, the average GPA that a company needed to raise funding was pretty darn low. But that's not how it normally is. It is normally competitive. And it's normally the case where you have to show uh, traction, you have to show velocity, you have to show some of these business fundamentals, which, you know, by virtue of the high availability of capital for the last few years, a lot of investors just kind of waved over. Um, and so what does that mean for now? Well, you know, first and foremost, the thing that I would I would encourage all founders to understand is there's no more rounding up happening. There's no more benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, prior to to this year, if you were fundraising and you were sort of on the fence or maybe you, you hadn't quite achieved some of your objectives, you'd be given the benefit of the doubt and you could still secure that capital. Now we're returning to a case where investors are saying, nope. I want to see the objective evidence. It's great that you're talking to this customer. Show me the pilot contract. It's great that you've had these users sign up. Why aren't you charging them yet? Uh, and again, these are things that were normally the case. You know, this is not a situation where investors are suddenly becoming, you know, uh, overbearing or asking for completely unreasonable things. Now, another thing that is happening is there is capital sitting on the side. There are a lot of investors saying, yes, we're investing who actually aren't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, candidly, it's unclear uh, and probably won't be clear for a quarter or two mm -hmm. what that number looks like. Um, in our case, Panache, early stage investors, pre-seed and, and, and seed investors tend to still be active because we're looking at a horizon of seven to 10 years in the future. Mm. Um, you know, in our case, we typically invest in about 20 companies a year. Uh, as of today, uh, you know, late October, I believe we've done 14. Um, you know, we're on schedule for that. Uh, so we haven't changed our pace of investing. Um, series A, Series B later definitely has slowed down. Uh, I won't dig into that because that's sort of outside of the, 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 the scope of the question. Mm -hmm. As it relates to seed or seed extensions, that's where things are going to get tough. Um, and the reason why is uh, a fund like ours, Panache, we write seed checks. About 40% of our investments are seeds. If somebody were looking for a seed investment from a, a strictly numbers standpoint, that would be in our sweet spot but it's not something that we'd ever built in our model, right? Mm -hmm. So historically, we're not used to looking at companies that had already raised a seed round, mm -hmm. right? We're used to having our first check at the first time they do the seed round. Mm -hmm. And so we're having to wrap our heads around these opportunities that we don't normally look at. And we're having to have conversations of, would we rather write a check into a seed extension, which is, you know, seed stage terms and a company mm -hmm. that's made a little more progress, which could be promising mm -hmm. over a company that has just achieved their seed metrics and they're earlier in their trajectory. Mm. Now, on the one hand, you could look at that and you could say, well, obviously you're going to go for the company that's made more progress. But then there's the other question, which is by virtue of the rounding up that's happened in the past, is the company actually where they need to be? Are they going fast enough? You know, we're seeing a lot of seed extension companies where very candidly, their seed round was done without the progress that normally one would need to have achieved hmm. uh, in order to, to raise a seed round. And so hmm. some of these seed extensions aren't that appealing to investors because the companies have not actually achieved as much as you might hope over a period of time. And they have a more complicated cap table. They have more investors. They have more dilution. Mm. Um, and so, you know, companies that are, are raising a seed extension, it is something that is tougher to do if your existing investors aren't willing to, to shoulder the burden. You know, and, and the other thing that is happening is firms like us are having to look at our own portfolio and allocate capital to seed extensions mm. that we hadn't previously planned on doing. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of shifting around where where investors are having to make some some pretty significant decisions that they haven't had to do in, you know, 14 years since 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and many VCs uh, have never had to do that before. Right. I have not 
had to reallocate uh, you know my portfolio like that because when 2008 and 2009 happened I was a founder I was on the other side of the table nice well we'll speak of that 2008 2009 which I think was a from from talking to many of my guests here realize is an amazing year to have started companies mm -hmm. um, amazing year tell me about the founding of data hero yeah so data hero was founded in uh, 2011 uh, after the acquisition of Astrodata. Astrodata mm -hmm. was one of the companies that helped to invent big data. Uh, and so we built the world's first 100 terabyte commercial database. We did some, some pretty impactful things in, in early large-scale data analytics. Mm -hmm. uh, all of this was done before the cloud existed. So, you know, Amazon AWS was just starting to come into existence and we were still very much building servers in, in um, server closets and, and deploying mm -hmm. uh, software using CDs and DVDs. Mm -hmm. um, as, as, as I exited uh, Teradata, one of the shifts that was happening was companies were starting to become for, for the first time ever um, dependent on software as a service. Mm -hmm. uh, and so up until kind of 2010, you did not use software that wasn't run within the company firewall. And we started to see this company called Salesforce, which was uh, an expert in CRM and big companies were starting to use Salesforce. And we were starting to see companies doing marketing automation, companies uh, like Pardot and Marketo and, and HubSpot was, was founded around that time. And so we were starting to see these, these software as a service companies come to fruition. Companies were starting to make use of them, but there was no way to bring the data back in. And so if I had a data warehouse uh, inside my, my firewall and I was using Salesforce for my, my sales system, I was using something like Marketo for marketing automation. Maybe I was using something like um, you know, SurveyMonkey for doing customer surveys. I had no way to actually pull that data together and make sense of it unless I took that data, downloaded it in, in very large data dumps, uploaded it into my data warehouse, did a whole bunch of custom stuff and, you know, hope to God that I could get enough uh, programming resources to make that happen. And so we built Data Hero to be the very first cloud native BI platform. Uh, and what we built was a system that not only built direct competitor uh, connectors, I'm sorry, into these cloud services, but the machine learning infrastructure necessary to standardize that data. And so somebody could come into Data Hero, connect to their Salesforce account, connect to HubSpot or Marketo, connect to Google Analytics, uh, put in their credentials, and Data Hero would automatically standardize the data so they could ask questions like, you know, what is the impact of, of this particular marketing campaign in HubSpot uh, on my Google Analytics traffic or on my sales pipeline within, within um, Salesforce? Oh, very interesting. Well, I mean, you had an exit to to cloudability, and I'm always intrigued by by this because it seems to be almost a 50-50. Um, did do you have a relationship with them prior, or yes. is it something where they just showed up and said, "Hey, we want you. Here's a bag of money." <laughs> how how did that? No, work? We 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 had a relationship, so we actually shared investors. Okay, well then, so because that's actually what I'm finding is more common. I mean, the movies always just shows you know that investor showing up, but it seems like you really have to work on that relationship. Kind of tell them, hey, you know, show them the value of what they can get by by getting you, and 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 also let them kick the tires and love you a little bit uh, beforehand, which I, which I think is great. Well, one thing that really intrigued me, and I can't remember if I if I read this in one of your blogs or if I read this uh, or just in doing some doing my research because I did my research, Chris, because you're you're important and I need to do my research because you've done so many amazing things here. But did you actually work on the original iTunes phone with Motorola? I did. I did. What was that? I, like? I after grad school, uh, I went and I worked for Motorola in Mountain View, California, mm -hmm. uh, on a team that was designed to, to work on next generation software. Uh, mm -hmm. And that team was tasked with developing. I mean, in those days, right, the, the coolest phone in the world was the Razer, mm -hmm. which on the one hand was a really cool physical phone, but it was this monochrome, very basic um, you know, operating system and, and touch screens were just starting to come into, into invention. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, you know, at that time, uh, the only touch screens that were really being deployed on phones were in, uh, China, uh, mm -hmm. to allow for people to write, uh, pinging and, and to be able to actually write, uh, characters on their phone for, mm -hmm. for text messaging. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, we knew that the touch screens were going to come in. We knew that these larger screens were going to come in and we were starting to develop, um, uh, the operating systems that would, that would start to drive that. 
Uh, and at the same time, there was this, you know, Apple, Motorola. Motorola is the coolest in the world when it comes to hardware. Apple is kind of the coolest when it comes to some of the software we were doing. What would happen if we put those together? Uh, and there was a phone called the E1 Rocker, which mm -hmm. uh, is sort of infamous in history, which was a Motorola candy bar phone. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're young, you have no idea what that means. Google it. Uh, that had a very, very like stripped down version of iTunes one. And I believe it had the ability to fit like 12 songs on it. That, that was and the it challenge. was like $500. <laughs> right. And, you know, it was this thing where, where, um, you know, the market was really, really excited about this, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it was very much the genesis of iPhone and that this was a case of absolute cultural clashes between two companies, you know, Motorola, was a hundred-year-old company based in Schaumburg, Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, with an incredible amount of bureaucracy, but also um, ego mm -hmm. around its capabilities. Uh, and you know, Apple was this—you know—we're going to break all the rules, we're going to innovate, we're going to change everything. And I think all, all you need to know is if you if you find the video of of Steve Jobs mm -hmm. in one of the very early sort of one more thing videos on stage introducing this phone. He's shaking his head. The phone didn't work during during the <laughs> stage presentation. It was an absolute utter disaster. Uh, and immediately after that, Apple started hiring away an incredible number of people uh, from Motorola because they didn't really have non solicitations, uh, you know, back mm. then. Uh, and so, you know, when people were still asking, "Wow, is Apple going to do their own phone?" Everyone at Motorola knew they were because they were hiring <laughs> away everyone they could get. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of my friends went to to join the the original iPhone team there, uh, and in fact, that was something that that I was considering when uh, some friends of mine from grad school said, "Hey, we're doing this this startup called Astrodata. Uh, do you want to join us?" And so it was like, "Okay, do we do I look at something like you know early Google or Apple, you know, and, and this sort of well paying uh, road to very high likelihood success?" Or an early stage startup based on uh, founded by a bunch of immigrant founders, where there's high likelihood in a year it doesn't work and we all get deported. Uh, obviously, I took the I took the latter uh, latter path, and and thankfully in in my case I did not get deported. Well, I think I think that was a really good decision for you, you know, to 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 cut your teeth on on the startup world. But I I actually do remember you know that exact announcement. Remember, I remember seeing Steve Jobs looking very black and decent about it, but thinking about. Yeah, it's 12 songs. Like, what can you do with this? Because, I mean, most people now, they don't it was, understand it was how useless. Oh, I mean, the, oh. the iPods back then could store 400 or 500 songs. Like, what but do you they do with hard drives? an album worth of songs. Yeah, but the iPods were hard drives. People don't understand that right now. Like, that was a physically spinning hard drive. My mom still has her original one because it fits, you know, so much of her. Well, she likes her books on tapes, right? Her, uh, And it fits so many more on it that even though she had phone like iPhones throughout she still kept that because she loved it amazing um but uh but I'm so glad to know your DNA was in there because I think that was such an important an important recognition that important that is disaster. what people want well no 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 <laughs> but but it was a cultural recognition that that is the direction people wanted it's just the tech wasn't there yet and it yeah. needed to be invested in and Apple was a great player to do it um you know un un unfortunately probably at Motorola's expense um, well, you, you touched on, you know, your, 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 your university, your background. So you got a BSc uh, in CompSci from SFU yep. and then an MSc uh, in CompSci at Stanford. Mm -hmm. How did the experience between, uh, you know, between the Canadian and U.S. schools differ? Oh, they're nothing alike. Um, well, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, for, for Canadians, we don't fully understand how important college is to U.S. culture, um, you know, and, and the way university is up here for, for most people, you go to university, you probably still live at home and it's kind of like going to a big high school, right? You drive in, you take your classes, you leave. In the United States, it is, it is the quintessential coming of age where, you know, Americans really come into their own in college, their social life revolves around it. They, you know, 20, 30 years later will fly from all over the world to go to what they call homecoming or, or mm -hmm. reunion. Um, so, you know, last weekend was was the the Stanford reunion for for the um, uh, class that I, I would have graduated undergrad. Right. So obviously I did undergrad in SFU, but many of my grad school friends were flying back to to, you know, see all of their their friends and their former, uh, you know, roommates and frat, you know, or, or sorority friends and all of these sorts of things after after 20 years. And, and it's just a completely different cultural thing. 
Um, in the case of Stanford, I don't know that you could even be more um, significant there in that at Stanford, 99% um, of students live on campus. Mm -hmm. So when the university was founded, it had an endowment specifically to make sure that all of the students would live there. And so imagine going from, from a situation where you're going to a traditional Canadian university, you kind of drive in or, or take the bus or whatever, take your classes, leave, maybe, you know, a handful of people that you have class to class to this situation where you're, you're kind of in this bubble day in and day out, and, and you're seeing the same group of people for, for years at a time. It's just a completely different um, uh, atmosphere, a different social interaction. Uh, and that's before even going to, to sort of the academics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, in Stanford, I mean, the academics, you can't go wrong, especially in computer science. I mean, you know, as far as far as I'm concerned, you're, 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 you're in the elite of the elite. Was there was there anyone, you know, the founders of companies that we would know today that you might have, uh, you know, rubbed shoulders with at class? Oh, gosh, there's an incredible number of massive companies where the founders came from from Stanford. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I. I have so many friends who are, are, are founders of, of interesting companies or, or investors or things like that. And many of them you you won't necessarily have heard of. Um, you know, one of my really dear friends is the CEO of a company called Clue, uh, which is the not not the Canadian financial okay. company, yeah. <laughs> um, but the the uh, women's health app. So the, mm. the leading women's health app uh, around the world. Uh, and she runs that. And she used to be one of the first 10 employees at Yelp. And then uh, she was at Hotel Tonight and she was at, at uh, you know, a number of these other other sort of really interesting companies. Uh, and what they're focused on right now is, is they were actually recently um, uh, approved as the world's first digital contraceptive. So their, mm -hmm. their AI data is so good that that the app can can uh, accurately uh, you know tell uh, tell women when they are 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 in periods of, of fertility, and that's actually moving to something where it will be covered by insurance. Wow. Uh, and so some <laughs> of the stuff that they're doing for 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 progressive women's health is absolutely incredible. And and you know that founder is is she's an, a complete rock star. Her name's Audrey Sang. Um, and then that's just one example. Um, oh. You know, I did a I did a post a, a, a while ago on my blog mm -hmm. that I think was titled, you know, "Can you beat my friends?" Love right. And 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 the purpose of that that um, post was to really highlight for Canadian founders that uh, you know if your goal is to be the best in the world, nobody else in Canada matters because the numbers say that all of your competitors are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And I highlighted a number of friends of mine who are our founders and CEOs of of uh, American unicorns, and a good significant number of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we went to school together at Stanford. Amazing, amazing. Well, we're going to go from Stanford to another part of the world that's a little bit, a little bit, let's just say, off the map. Uh, but I'm again dug deep into my um, into my history of uh, of Chris Newman here. And is it true that you launched an accelerator in Oman? That is true. Yes. Did you get to go to Oman? Because I've been, and it's a wonderful country. I got to say, absolutely wonderful, wonderful. Not exactly known as the as the tech uh, tech hub of the world, but yes. Uh, it was an accelerator, accelerator called the Wadi Accelerator, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. operated and, and funded by uh, the Oman Technology Fund, uh, which is sort of let's let's call it, you know, kind of an equivalent to, to a BDC tech fund. Okay, okay. Well, it, what sort what sort of companies were coming through? Uh, something like would it would it be like global focused or or kind of no, regional no. focused? So, so these types of accelerators are very much ecosystem development plays, and and they okay. exist all over the world where governments are looking at the future mm -hmm. and looking at the need to develop a tech economy. And so mm -hmm. in in the Middle East in particular, um, many of the countries, including the the some of the very wealthy ones, right, like like UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, their their wealth and their their influence comes from oil. Mm -hmm. The reality is every single one of them knows that in 20 years the oil is gone, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what what may not be apparent is the degree to which these these governments are putting considerable, considerable resources into ways to diversify their economy. Um, the best example of that being Dubai, which you know a number of years ago focused on making that city a, a financing hub for the region, mm -hmm. and and to to you know all all intents and purposes they've succeeded at doing that. Um, mm -hmm. Other countries are looking at ways to increase their tech economy, and we're seeing you know pretty significant um, um, investment in uh, Oman uh, is putting a lot of money in that, Egypt's mm -hmm. putting a lot of money in that, Saudi Arabia is putting a lot of money into that. 
uh, Qatar has has been putting a lot of money into that, where they're taking the the wealth and 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 the uh, income that they're gaining from the oil and and running accelerators. And so the accelerators aren't meant to create you know world changing unicorns. They're meant mm -hmm. to basically help facilitate a first generation of domestic tech companies. Um, and so many of those companies are regional companies. They're, you know, food delivery companies for, for Oman or, um, you know, companies that are, are building, you know, as I recall, there were companies building technology for education uh, mm -hmm. and, and that was under the auspices of how education was done there. Um, one of the more interesting companies that was there, which I've never seen at any other accelerator, is there was a company where the founders had built a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher for shooting down drones of course. that they were selling to the Oman government because they wanted to have that domestically. So these three founders would show up and, and you know, I, I can still see them in my mind. They had sort of... Um, uh, jumpsuits, like the kind that like car mechanics would have, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. most most founders have like t-shirts with their logo. These guys had dark blue uh, jumpsuits with their with their startup logo, and they were the nerdiest wow. guys in the world. They were like <laughs> mechanical engineers by trade, and they'd literally walk into the accelerator with a bloody rocket launcher on their shoulder. It's like this is awesome. <laughs> How bizarre, how bizarre. Well, you know, we're going to go back to Canada because I know you've got a hard stop. So we're going to we're going to do our best to get through two of our we'll call it the 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 the, the thesis of our of, of, of why we have this podcast, which is to, you know, speak to wonderful, um, you know, uh, Canadian entrepreneurs like yourself in order to prepare that next generation. So I just have these two questions. I always ask. I'm really intrigued to know your thoughts on them. The first being, can you share one piece of advice to help a younger Canadian founder? Yeah, so I, the biggest piece of advice that I can give any founder is to seek advice from outside of your bubble. Mm. Um, and that bubble could be your local city, your province, your country. Um, you know, with with the internet, we can literally go out. And if you're a founder in a particular, you know, you're a founder in shoulder-mounted rocket launchers for drones, there's nothing stopping you from reaching out over Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever to other founders of similar companies mm. and saying, hey, I'm doing something like you. You want to jump on a call? Let's share ideas. Or reaching out to an investor that you want to talk to, you know, two years from now and saying, hey, look, I'm not fundraising right now. Would you consider, you know, a 15 minute call so I can tell you what I'm doing? I would love to get your input on if you think this is a problem we're solving. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes we seek advice and mentorship that is physically proximate to us. It, it sort of lands mm -hmm. in our lap and, and, you know, you often get what you pay for with that. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that is, as Canadians, um, you know, founders have a, a, a disservice is, you know, with, with both investors and others in the ecosystem not spending a lot of time outside of Canada, it's very easy to get loud advice that sounds convincing, but is coming from a very narrow lens of experience. And, you know, that's not to say that Canadian advice is good or bad, or like American advice is better. That's not, not at all the point. But if you're only getting mentorship and advice from one type of person, it's all going to be the same and they're all going to agree and it's going to sound like a great idea and you have like no idea if it's actually good advice or not. Mm, so I seeking out multiple excellent. perspectives can really help inform you and help you to make better decisions as you, as you move along your journey. I think that's great advice. I actually tell a lot of startup people that they should ask people that hate them what uh, to ask them about their, their ideas, because they'll be so honest. It's not funny. Um, but that's a great way. Well, last question for you. And uh, yeah. this is uh, can be an interesting one is, can you share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you personally look up to? I don't know that I can give you one that, that I look up to per se, because my, my formative years as a founder were, were in the United States at a time where, where the Canadian ecosystem was, was very nascent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I would say is that coming back to Canada, um, you know, the Canadian ecosystem today is is where it is because some people spent a lot of time you know putting in the hours putting in the work helping to develop these early ecosystems when it wasn't cool to be a, a tech founder in Canada and, and nobody believed it was going to happen uh, and there's there's you know people from coast to coast who have been putting in you know at this point decades of work to help build up the Canadian ecosystem Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm able to do the work I do today because I'm standing on the shoulders of just these incredible uh, folks, founders, investors, you know, folks in government, others across the country who've laid the groundwork for what is, is you know, really turning into a golden age of tech for Canada. 
Sure. Well, I'll say I look up to you, Chris, especially with your great <laughs> advice and, and great advice and lessons shared. And I, I look forward to continuing learning from you. And, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for joining us today. And, and uh, you know, I look forward to uh, continuing watching you and what uh, the great stuff that Panache Ventures is doing. Well, thanks so much for having me, Chris. And uh, let's do it again soon. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode. And that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.